All right. As you're turning to Acts chapter 2, the famous American evangelist D.L. Moody once said, just as it is impossible to see without your eyes or to hear without your ears or to breathe without your lungs, so it is impossible to live the Christian life without the power of the Holy Spirit. That's a powerful quote. I believe that. The Christian life isn't hard to live without the Holy Spirit. It's impossible. It's impossible to live without the power of the Holy Spirit. To live the Christian life, it's impossible apart from the Spirit of God coming in, taking up his residence in us and filling us and empowering us and flowing through us as he uses us for his glory. It's absolutely impossible to do that. Today we come to the famous chapter 2 of the book of Acts that deals with the day of Pentecost. Now I want to throw this out. I am looking at verses 1 through 4a. <laughs> Did you just hear me? I am looking at verses 4 through 1 or, or verses 1 through 4a. That means we are not going to finish all of verse for today, and all of you Bible scholars are thinking, what? He's not going to talk about the, the most controversial part of that passage, speaking in tongues? Oh, I'm going to. When has your pastor ever avoided a difficult topic? When have I ever done that? We're going to get to it. I promise. I just want to make sure that we have enough time to really look at it. This chapter, I know, is, I could probably spend eight weeks just in chapter two. There is so much in this chapter and, and I wanna give it adequate time as we study it and unpack it, okay? But, but the day that we're looking at, it's special because it's the day that the Holy Spirit came in his fullness and he formed the church, the body of Christ of which Jesus is the head. And I believe that what happened, and this is one of the most important doctrines of the book of Acts, and I'm gonna say that again, this is one of the most important doctrines in the book of Acts is not so much that they were filled with the spirit or even that they spoke in tongues or this amazing experience that they had and what they heard and they saw flaming tongues of fire over everyone's head. All of this is amazing. All of it has significance and we'll talk about it. But the big idea here, listen very carefully, the big idea here is that the church, the body of Christ, not the building, not a denomination, but all believers in Jesus Christ are actually put together as one body. Do you hear me? Jew and Gentile all become one. This, chapter 2, is the birthday of the church. Now again, not a denomination, not a building, but a called out people who become the body of Jesus Christ, the bride of Christ. And, and one day we will be caught up with Jesus again. But right now we're being filled with the Holy Spirit as we go out and we do the works of Jesus. So the new chapter in this amazing story of God's grace, this is why Paul, or not Paul, Luke could say, I wrote about all the things that Jesus began to do and to teach because the ministry of Jesus Christ is not over. Now it's happening through you and me. If we've if we've placed Jesus as our king in our life. It's a new era. And you know what? In this new season, the church is not a place. It's a movement. You've heard me say this before. Many, many times I've said it. Church is not a place. It's a movement. And church has become instead a place where we just go or it has become an event we attend. 
And you can see that in the words that we use. In fact, the original word in Greek for church, ekklesia, is an assembly gathered around this mission. But the word that we use in English, is it actually comes from the German word for church, and it means a place you gather for religious purposes. But what we're going to see all throughout the book of Acts is, is that the original church was a movement, a movement gathered around a mission. And I want you to hear me. The mission came first. The mission came first. The mission was given in Acts 1. Go into all the world. The church has a mission. Then the church wasn't formed until Acts 2. So God doesn't have a mission for his church. He made a church for his mission. I'm going to say it again. God doesn't have a mission for his church. He made a church for his mission. Which means this, a church that's not on mission is not really a church at all. And believers who are not on mission are not really part of the true church. Movements move, and if you're not moving, you're not a part of the movement. No, that sounds harsh. Love Acts chapter 2. I love this. I love this chapter of redemptive history that we're in today. Because in the old age, the spirit was with you, but in the new age, he's where? He's in you. He's in you. That's what Tiffany was talking about. In the old age, men serve God out of fear of consequences under the law. In the new age, we serve God out of a love for Jesus Christ and we're energized by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It's a totally new season. This is the birth of a new age and the character of the new age is the church. The church, a body of believers indwelt by the Holy Spirit in all all in an invisible union with Jesus Christ and with each other. You want to know the, the miracle of Pentecost is that, that God brought all these different cultures and people from different backgrounds together as one. That is the power of Pentecost. Did you hear me? All different kinds of people groups coming together as one. It's amazing. It's amazing. Acts 2 is the birth of the church, the next step in God's story of saving humanity. Now remember, God's worked to reveal himself to humanity in a saving way. He's done that through Jesus. In the Old Testament, he revealed himself in terms of the law and sacrifices, but then came Jesus. Jesus uh, died, he was buried, and then he rose again bodily and physically. And then the next act in this story is Jesus goes back to heaven, but the story doesn't end there because that's when the story gets really good. He sends the Holy Spirit and the church is born. So, I, I, today I've got a lot of verses and here's why. Because I had this sermon ready, sent it to him on Friday, and then on Saturday I'm praying over it and, and putting in all kinds of new, new passages as well. So Corey and the back crew, they're amazing, they're awesome. They're not going to have all of the verses, which means I need you to be a student today. And I need you to have your Bible. We got the lights on. And I need you to be flipping back and forth if it's not up on the wall, okay? I want to take you back real quick just to set the stage to Acts chapter 1. And I want to look at verses 4 through 5. In Acts chapter 1, verse 4, it says, And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for. Now, please, please notice this statement made here in verse 4. He says, wait for the promise. The promise of the Father. This promise that Jesus makes in Acts chapter 1, this promise is fulfilled in Acts chapter 2. 
It's fulfilled with the coming of the Holy Spirit. And then look, it says, to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. Jesus is referring to the upper room conversation he had in John chapter 13 through 17. And I won't make you go back there, but the gist of it is Jesus said that he would send another comforter. Another. I want you to focus on the word another real quick because uh, the Greek word, it means another of the very same kind. That's important. By using this word, Jesus was sending a very clear message that when the Holy Spirit came, the Spirit would be just like himself. The Holy Spirit would perfectly represent Jesus in every way and duplicate his life and ministry. He would mirror Jesus to such a degree, in fact, that whatever Jesus would say is exactly what he would say, and whatever Jesus would do is exactly what he would do. To the disciples, this statement must have have been pretty encouraging because it let them know that the Holy Spirit's presence would make it seem as if Jesus was still there among them. It's powerful. So when John, chapter 14, verses 16, when he uses that word, he's telling you, telling telling you, telling me that, that Jesus was saying the Holy Spirit and I are identical in every way. So by having him, the Holy Spirit, it'll be as if you still have me. You guys ever heard people express how they wish they could have lived 2,000 years ago with Jesus? How many of you have been a Sunday school teacher of elementary? Because <laughs> this, this is what I would always hear when I taught Sunday school. Well, it'd be a lot easier if we lived with Jesus. I mean, I could do what the disciples did if I lived and walked with Jesus. They lived with Jesus. My kids say it all the time, too. Why couldn't we have lived with Jesus? Why didn't he come and live with us in this, this uh, day and age? Well, the truth is that if we believe the words of Jesus in John chapter 14 about the Holy Spirit in his likeness to Jesus, then we, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't be sad about not living 2,000 years ago. No, in fact, we would be pretty excited, pretty thrilled that we get to live in this chapter of God's redemptive story. Jesus taught that if the Holy Spirit resides within us, it's identical to having Jesus walk amongst us in the flesh. Did you hear me? So if you want to know what the Spirit of God is like, look to Jesus in the four Gospels. He taught that the Holy Spirit exactly mirrors his own character, power, and actions And this is another reason why it's so important for you to get the story of Jesus deep down in your heart as you learn what the master did, how he acted, how he responded to different situations. It's going to help you know the Holy Spirit better. For he and Jesus are identical in all of these ways, and whatever Jesus did is exactly what the Holy Spirit will lead you to do in every situation of life as you lean on his guidance and direction from within. And get this. Get this, he says, I'm going to send you another comforter. It's a translation of the Greek word parakletos. The word is derived from two roots, para, besides, and kaleo, to call. So in the secular Greek, the word suggested one who has been called to another side for counsel. An example would be like an advocate in court or an advisor. Think about that. So now... Again, go back to Acts chapter 1. We read verse 4. Now look with me at verse 5. It says, For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with, and the Greek word with can be within or by, So, but you will be baptized within or by the Holy Spirit not many days from now. 
And then if you look at, you look down at verse 8, chapter 1, verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Hmm. I love what Vince Habner says. He says, we are not going to move this world by criticism of it, nor conformity to it, but by the combustion within it of lives ignited by the Spirit of God. That is what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is all about. I want to look at verses 1 through 4, and I want you to focus with me, starting in verse 1. We're going to see here the first miracle. The very first miracle is in verse 1. Look with me. Verse 1, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Before we get into this, before I go any further, can we just pray? Because I, I know that I am preaching on a, a passage of the Bible that unfortunately has caused a lot of uh, division. And I want you to understand one thing about the coming of the Holy Spirit. It was not supposed to cause division for the church. In fact, it was supposed to unite us. And so I, I want to pray, no matter what your background is, no matter what you've been taught, I want to I pray that the Holy Spirit would allow us to look at the text, focus on the text, and that, and that we, we would uh, draw truth from that. Can you do that with me? I can't do this, but the Holy Spirit can. So, so let's pray. Father, as we look to your word, I pray that the Holy Spirit would do what only the Holy Spirit can do, that, that you would give us illumination, that you would just open our eyes to see what you're teaching us, to see the truth of your word. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So why did Jesus choose Pentecost as the day when he would pour out the spirit on the disciples? I wanna focus on what this day would have meant to the Jews during this time. Uh, Pentecost, and again, I, I've said this over and over, God's word will be fulfilled, and Pentecost was a fulfillment of God's word. A literal translation of verse 1 is, it, it could read this, when the day of Pentecost was being fulfilled. And some of you are saying, well, what exactly do you mean, Pastor Justin, by Pentecost? Well, if you study the book of Leviticus, which, by the way, you can with Dr. Hembry on <laughs> Wednesday night. So if you, study, <laughs> if you study the book of Leviticus 23, you have what are called the feasts of the Lord. You see, the Jews had these different feasts and they had different ones that would require them to make a trip to Jerusalem to worship the Lord and Pentecost was one of those feasts. It was coupled together with three feasts. Uh, number one, uh, the Passover feast. Number two, the feast of first fruits or the feast of barley loaves. And number three, the feast of Pentecost called the feast of weeks because it was seven weeks after the feast of first fruits which was 50 days later. The word Pentecost actually means 50 days. So it was 50 days after the Feast of First Fruits. And each one of these feasts had a fulfillment in the life of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus uh, in the New Testament. So look, think about Passover. Passover was when Jesus died on the cross, okay? During the Passover, they would slay a lamb and it would be symbolic of the blood that was shed for them. Jesus was the Passover lamb. When he died, he died on Passover and he fulfilled he fulfilled that in the sense that he died on the cross for our sins. And Passover was one of the annual feasts that all the Jews had to come together for in Jerusalem. The very next day, uh, on Saturday, Sabbath, and the next day would be Sunday, there would be a week-long feast called the Feast of First Fruits. And, and this was the fulfillment of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
It was the ingathering of the harvest. They would take a, a stock of wheat and they would harvest it and they would wave it before the Lord. And, and, and Jesus in the New Testament, he's called the first fruits of those who sleep. So it was the first fruits of the harvest gathering, but it was fulfilled in the resurrection. And then we come to the Feast of Weeks, 50 days later from the beginning of the first fruits. Seven weeks after the first fruits or 50 days. Started on the day after, after the Sabbath. So it was on Sunday. And when you read, when the day of Pentecost was being fulfilled, you have to remember Passover was fulfilled in the crucifixion of Jesus. The first fruits was fulfilled in the resurrection of Jesus. And now we see that the feast of Pentecost was being fulfilled in the coming of the Holy Spirit. And what was the, what was the fulfillment of that? The birth of the church. The birth of the church, the formation of the body of Jesus Christ. Now, maybe some of you this is totally new. It's a new idea to you. And and I want to encourage you that as you study the Bible, you're going to be able to put all the pieces together and and understanding the church and its relationship to the Lord. You've got to be a student of God's word. And and you'll see that uh, I want to be careful maybe not to call it a prophetic. It is a prophetic calendar. Uh, God has these seasons and we're in a season right now. We're in, in that season of grace and mercy, the season of the church going out and saving and bringing in as many souls as they can. But I want you to understand the day of, the day of Pentecost, it was a fulfillment of prophecy in God's word in the Old Testament. I just recently heard a very well-known pastor who is on the TV quite a bit, written many books, and he's very well-respected in the evangelical church come out and say, I think that the church needs to begin to divorce themselves from the Old Testament. (laughs) Let me tell you something. (laughs) The Old Testament is God's word and it points to Jesus. From Genesis to Revelation, it's the love story. It's the story of redemption. We can't divorce ourselves from the Old Testament. We can't really know about Jesus unless we understand the Old Testament. The Old Testament's important. God's word is important. But, you know, I find it interesting that during the Feast of Pentecost, it was, it was not just one sheaf that would be waved, but they would actually bake two loaves of bread. And, and of the only baked offering of the Lord, it included in it leaven, which was a form of yeast, which would make the bread rise. In the Old Testament, yeast was symbolic of sin. And, and what did the two loaves represent? Well, I believe the two loaves represented the Jews and the Gentiles. And that the church would be the inclusion of both Jew and Gentile. And, and I want you to understand this concept didn't really exist. It, it, this understanding didn't really exist amongst the Jews at this time. Um, it doesn't mean that God throughout the Old Testament didn't in, include ways for Gentiles to come to Jesus. We can see from Genesis all the way to the end of the Old Testament that our God is, is, was a God that his main concern was to save everybody. Gentiles had a way of coming to know God too, but, but the, the Jews didn't really understand this concept. They had no concept of the fact that there would be a body of Christ that would be made up of Jews and Gentiles. And as, as we'll be going through the book of Acts, that early church, as we see this early church unfold, the first Christians being Jewish sometimes had a really difficult time understanding that the Gentiles could be saved and, and they could be a part of the church. And many of them would believe that in order to become a Christian, you had to become a Jew and, a, a fellow, and follow Jewish laws or the law of Moses. You had to do that to become a Christian. And Paul would contend with them. doesn't work that way. We're saved by grace and in the same standing before God and the church. And so I, I look at this and I believe the loaves, loaves represent both Jew and Gentile coming together and forming the church. 
And, and the leaven or the, the yeast representing sin, well, that tells us something, doesn't it? We're just a bunch of sinners in the church. We're just saved by grace. You ever experienced sinners in the church? <laughs> I've heard this. I never go to church. There's way too many hypocrites. And I always say, you bet, and there's always room for one more. <laughs> the church is not perfect, but we're forgiven, thank God. We're growing in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. We want to become more like him, but we're in this, the kingdom is here, but not fully staged, which means we won't be made fully perfect until the day that we go to be with him. And if you believe differently, you know, you believe all we've got to do is ask your friends or your spouse or your kids, and we'll discover that you have not been made perfect yet. It's important to think about this, this new stage in the terms of God's plan that's unfolding. Again, Passover was Christ's death. The feast of the first fruits was the resurrection of Jesus. And the feast of the weeks, or Pentecost, is the coming of the Holy Spirit and the birth of the church. Just as important as the birth, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus Christ, it is just as important this moment when God sends his Holy Spirit. John chapter 7, verse 39, it sheds some light on what's taking place in the four verses we're looking at today. In verse 39, he says, By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him would later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. So the fact that the Holy Spirit came indicates that Jesus is now glorified in heaven at the right hand of the Father. In other words, the coming of the Holy Spirit is an indication that he is safe in heaven. When they saw him going up to heaven, how did they know he made it to heaven? Because the Holy Spirit came. Jesus is now glorified in heaven. And so Pentecost, it symbolizes for the church the beginning of God's harvest of souls in the world. I want to give you a real quick history lesson, if, you, if you'll let me, okay? <laughs> Talk about the first great awakening, which began around 1740, and it lasted till around 1742. It was led by great men like Jonathan Edwards. George Whitefield, and, and during this revival, or this move of the Holy Spirit, around 50,000 people were added to the churches of New England, and that was very significant considering the population was about 300,000 at the time. Think about that. 50,000 people being added to the church, population of 300,000. Jonathan Edwards said this, he said, from the fall of man to our day, the work of redemption in its effect has mainly been carried on by remarkable or extraordinary communications of the Spirit of God. Though there is a more constant influence of God's Spirit always in some degree attending his ordinances, yet the way in which the greatest things have been done towards carrying on his work always have been by remarkable outpourings at special seasons of mercy. Let me tell you what Jonathan Edwards is saying here. He's saying that throughout history, there have been seasons where the Holy Spirit has been poured out on people and the outcome was supernatural miracles and life transformation. The second great awakening took place from uh, 1790s to around 1840 and it was led by many incredible preachers, including guys like Charles Finney. 
It took place during the days of the Wild West when camp meetings were held in tents with sawdust floors and traveling preachers shared the gospel and thousands and thousands of Americans came to faith during this time. And from that movement, a 48-year-old businessman named Jeremiah Lanfear, who had began a prayer meeting in New York City, it was small at first, but it exploded after the stock market crash. And within six months, get this, 10,000 New Yorkers were gathering daily for prayer, and around one million came to believe in Jesus from that movement. Now, Throughout the latter half of the 19th century in the United States, Protestants from all kinds of different backgrounds began asking themselves, why aren't our churches experiencing some of the the vibrant faith-filled life as those that are described in the New Testament? And, And many of these believers or these seekers joined evangelical or holiness churches, and they began to engage in very serious prayer. They went hard after God. It was in this context that people began to experience biblical spiritual gifts. They were hungry for something real, hungry for authentic Christianity. Sometimes it's, it's circumstances in our life that push us to be hungry. I wish that weren't the case. But sometimes it's the experiences that's happening around the world. When you're desperate, it pushes you to be really hungry for something real. I've often said this. Those people out here who don't put their faith in Jesus, who don't believe in Jesus Christ, they don't want to come in here just for some type of community. They could go get community in a lot of places. They could go find community in, in soccer moms or sports leagues or, or all kinds. There's community after community after community who will embrace people. People aren't going to be drawn because we put on really cool programs. We have a really cool Sunday morning. They want something real, something authentic. They want to experience the real power of Jesus Christ. And so they would just seek the Holy Spirit. And all of a sudden you had all these spiritual outpourings. Just like the first great awakening and the second great awakening. And, and this paved the way for the Welsh revival that took place in 1904, which started after young people. Young people, guess what? Revivals can happen with young people. They can happen with our students. They can happen in our kids' ministry. God moves and he, the Holy Spirit moves with young people. So the Welsh revival starts with young people. And they began to experience the reality of God's power through the Holy Spirit. The church exploded with a fire of heaven, and, and this went on to influence Azusa Street. Azusa Street started in Los Angeles. It was marked by exactly, exactly what the church needed at the time, an outpouring of power from heaven. And the Holy Spirit was restored to the church. People started experiencing the gifts of the, the Holy Spirit. Many spoke in tongues, they gave prophetic words, they witnessed miracles, signs and wonders everywhere they went. They would have services all day long. Did you hear me? Services all day long. Because they were hungry for the presence of the Holy Spirit. They just couldn't get enough of the Holy Spirit. And that was the start of the Pentecostal movement. And as it spread, that's how our, our church Churches like us, that's how the Assemblies of God formed in 1914 in Hot Springs, Arkansas. The Assemblies of God formed and said, hey, we're going to be a denomination that focuses on getting the gospel to every single people group through the power of the Holy Spirit. And then in the 60s and the 70s, America entered a season of apathy and fear. And this was resulting from the rise of the Cold War, intense Vietnam War protests and the first nuclear bomb test. And it was during this time that the Jesus movement was founded. 
And I want to tell you something. My brother pastors in, in Costa Mesa, California. He's in Southern California. And I have met people in his church that were saved out of the Jesus movement. During this time, many drug addicts in Costa Mesa, California, came to know Jesus in Calvary Chapel under the leadership of Chuck Smith, saw incredible revival. And the preaching of Jesus was accompanied by many signs and wonders. Just watched a documentary on Chuck Smith, and, and it talked about a time where they, they were uh, doing a baptismal service, and there was somebody with no no arms, no legs, no limbs. And so they were carrying this person out to be baptized. And as they baptized him and brought him up, his, his arms and his legs began to grow right in front of them. All kinds of eyewitness testimonies that, that were there and, and claimed they saw this. In the 80s, the vineyard movement under John Wimber led to the planting of hundreds of churches. The movement sought to demonstrate the power of the Holy Spirit through signs and wonders, and it was marked by many healings and intimate worship sessions with Jesus. So I want you to understand something today. As we approach today's text, I want you to remember that the day of Pentecost was the first of these many great outpourings on God's people. And until the task of world evangelization is completed, it's our responsibility to continue to pray for fresh seasons of the extraordinary outpouring of God's spirit to awaken and empower the church and to penetrate the final frontiers of world evangelization. Verse two, we're gonna see our second miracle. We're gonna look at the words wind and fire, but I want you to see this. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house. Some, some people say this house could be translated temple, so there's debate to whether God, he's referring to somebody's dwelling place, somebody's house, or if they were at the temple. It filled the entire house where they, they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each, of, each one of them. And suddenly a sound came from heaven. I want you to take note of this word because I need you to understand something. The Holy Spirit is free and sovereign. The Holy Spirit is not constricted to our idea of our timing or, or how we're to get his power. We need to rely daily, indwelling presence and grace, walk in the obedience of faith and pray day and night for the outpouring of power from on high. But we cannot make the Spirit come when he comes. He comes suddenly. He will never become anyone's bellhop. He loves and he serves, but he keeps his own hours. He knows what is best for us. When the Spirit comes in power, he comes suddenly on his own terms and in his own time, and he comes for harvesting. Now, I want you, I want you to, so many times we can actually hinder the moving of the Holy Spirit. Oh, we got to keep on schedule. My goodness, we told them we'd be out by noon. They got to be out by noon. We got to get those songs. Boom, boom, boom. Let's get them done. Sometimes we can actually hinder the moving of the Holy Spirit. Again, the Holy Spirit moves on his time, not ours. This is important here. The Bible's telling us something that happened. It's, it's explaining a supernatural, miraculous event. And the whole, the whole experience is, is, is unusual. All of us have experienced things that are unusual and not normal. And then we, we try to explain that to somebody. And we struggle to find a way to explain it to somebody. So we start saying things like, well, it was like this. You know, or it was, it was like that. We say that, right? So 
he explains it in terms that we would understand, but, it, but this was supernatural, and you need to understand that this is, this is hard to explain. He explains it with two words, wind and fire. Did you know that in, in Hebrew and in the Greek, the Old Testament and New Testament, the word in Hebrew for wind is the same word for spirit. And in Greek, the word for wind is the same word for spirit. So in the Old Testament, ruach, ruach, hakodesh is literally spirit the Lord. The Holy Spirit is ruach, spirit. In the Greek language, same principle, spirit in Greek is, is pneuma, and it's also the same word for breath or wind. So they hear something, it's something that's an audible experience for them, a sound of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting, so it got their attention. But what's interesting is, the sound of this mighty wind probably would have made many of these men and women who knew the Hebrew scriptures very well think of the presence of the Holy Spirit. Because in Genesis chapter one, verses one through two, it says the spirit of God as, as the breath of God blowing over waters of the newly created earth. Or in Genesis chapter two, seven, it is the spirit of God as the breath slash wind of God blowing life into new, newly created man. In Ezekiel 37, 9 through 10, it's the spirit of God as the breath slash wind of God moving over the dry bones of Israel, bringing them life and strength. They would have been very familiar with that, the symbolism there. And when we see the word fire, the new believers had little tongues of fire above their heads. Could it be referring, again, I told you, uh, some, some scholars believe that the word for house could actually be translated temple and that they were actually in the temple. So seems to me that that would make sense. I'm not about to tell you what it was because I don't know. But it seems that, that that could be a possibility, makes sense, because it was in the morning, it was during the time of prayer, and the occurrence of so many people, over 3,000 from different parts of the world were gathered there for Pentecost. So it makes sense that they could have been at the temple. And if they were at the temple, that was where the fire of God historically had burned. And, and if that was the case, and think about this, it was this... God was saying, I've moved my house from this temple to this temple. Moved my house from that temple to this temple. Fire was also used as a symbol of God's presence. What did Moses see in Exodus 3? He walked by something that was a burning bush. It was, a, it was burning, but not consumed, right? And the angel of the Lord spoke to him through the bush, said, take your shoes off, you're on holy ground. On Mount Sinai, when God spoke and gave the law, there was lightning, thunder, fire, smoke. It was a symbol of God's presence. What, what was it that directed the children of Israel by night for 40 years through the wilderness? A pillar of fire. It was very symbolic for the Jews. And so with their history, they would have definitely been very familiar with wind and fire. Because it was a symbol of God's presence and God's power. Now, four words I want you to to take note of if you're writing notes from, from those two verses. Four words that the passage tells us something about the, how the Holy Spirit moves. Suddenly, we already kind of went over that. Sometimes God moves suddenly. Sound, I want you to underline sound. It was, it was real, though it couldn't be touched, it came by their ears. It was real. From heaven, it wasn't of earth. Not created or manipulated or made here. It was from heaven and mighty. Full of force, it came with power. Now, I love, because I want to share a couple things as we examine this together. 
This was taken from a, a teaching that Mark Driscoll did, but a few, a few things I want to share. Number one, Jesus' mission is not to take us from the world, but to join us in the world by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Okay? His mission is not to take us from the world, but to join us in this world by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. We live in this world, and yet we're not of this world. But Jesus has a purpose and a plan for you. Now, you guys have more of an opportunity to witness than I do, because guess what I do every day? I come into the church, and I'm surrounded by saved people. I remember my father, he was a police officer, and then a lawyer, and then a church planner, and then a missionary. He just liked to do it all. He would always say this when he was a pastor, though. He, he said in some ways he missed being a police officer because he led way more people to Jesus as a police officer than he ever did as a pastor. Because my dad was baptized in the Holy Spirit, full of the Holy Spirit, and when he would arrest somebody, <laughs> he would share Jesus with them. I said, that's not even fair, Dad. You had them desperate in the back seat of your car, and they had nowhere to go but to sit and listen to you. But he looked at his job as this opportunity to share Jesus. He was a missionary. You are missionaries. You are called. God didn't call. He, he's not, his point isn't to take you out. He's put you in this world, but he's filled you with his Holy Spirit. And he has a purpose for your life, and that's to share his message. Okay, number two, Jesus' mission does not send us to a holy place, a temple or Mecca. But instead, Jesus sends the Holy Spirit to make us a holy place individually and corporately as God's people. Think about that. I loved thinking about that truth when I was a missionary because I had to go to some of the darkest places that I have ever been and I had to remember and remind myself that I don't need the church with the steeple. The Holy Spirit is right here. Wherever I go, I carry that with me. Number three, Jesus' mission requires that the Holy Spirit sometimes works loudly and publicly but at other times quietly and privately. Here the Holy Spirit's going to work loudly and publicly, but he's not limited to working in that way, okay? He works in many, many ways. I hate it sometimes growing up in, well, I don't hate growing up in the Pentecostal church. I, I, I hated that sometimes growing up in the Pentecostal church, I would get people that would get confused with this. I, I, I remember one particular time I was at a junior, no, senior high Bible camp. Don't you love Bible camps? Everybody's on fire for Jesus, responding to the altar calls. And I remember, you know, I, I was never real emotional as a kid, but the Holy Spirit was really working on me. And so I sat way in the back in this corner, and I wasn't sobbing or crying at the altar, but God was working with me. And I remember one of the camp volunteers came and put their arm around me and said, how can I help you experience the Holy Spirit? No, see, to that person, the Holy Spirit, if he's moving, it had to be with people sobbing at the altar and crying. No, I, no, the Holy Spirit was, he was moving in my life. He was working with me as I sat in that chair. It just was quiet at that moment. The Holy Spirit, he, he's going to sometimes do, he's going to be loud. It's going to be very public, but there are times that the Holy Spirit's going to work quietly. Do you understand that? Important truth to know. Number four, Jesus' mission. This is what we're going to get into and, and, and end with this here in not a minute, but a, <laughs> a few. Number four, Jesus' mission requires that you individually and we corporately be filled with the Holy Spirit. We can't be who Jesus has made us to be and we can't do what Jesus has called us to do unless we are filled by the power and the presence of the person of the Holy Spirit. 
okay? Jesus wants you to experience his power in a way that you have never experienced it before, like you've never imagined it possible in your own life. He is stirring right now, this very moment, with some of you who are with us today. He's stirring in your hearts. He's moving right now. And that brings us to verse 4, and we're only going to look at the first part of verse 4. 4a here, it says, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, I want you to do something for me. I want you to underline, they were all. They were all, every single one of them. Peter's going to say later in chapter 2 that this gift is for everyone, and we're going to get to that in a little in a few weeks, but I want to mention it at least because some folks have a really difficult time with this particular verse because some will say that this, this is not for today. Signs, miracles, wonders, not for today. And Peter later is going to say that in the last, quoting a prophecy, in the last days I will pour out my spirit on all people. On all people. And some will say that Paul, Paul taught that this wasn't for today. This is actually contradicting some of the things that Paul taught. And, and a lot of times, and let me just pause for a minute. Because I told you I grew up fifth generation Pentecostal Assemblies of God minister, but I grew up in a Baptist school, and I grew up in a lot of denominations where I got a lot of different teaching. And, and when I was 18, I just wanted to know the truth. You know, I wanted to discover the truth for myself, and I know what my dad had taught me. I know what my grandpa had taught me. I knew what I had learned in Sunday school. But I, 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 I am a student of God's word, and I, I set out to discover the truth. I got kicked out of three different Bible college classes at Central Bible College for being, I guess I was arguing too much. I wasn't arguing. I was just, I was digging in. I wanted to know God's word. I wanted to know the truth. And I, I have truly studied and, and spent a lifetime of studying. Is this, I don't want to stand up as, as God's spokesperson and preach a message that is heresy. That's the last thing. I have to stand before God. I'm going to be judged for everything that I preach. Everything. So you, you better believe that I take this really serious. And I've, st I've studied this so much because I want to make sure I'm really preaching the word of God. But I can't find anywhere in scriptures that would say that it's not for today. I can't. Now I know, I know a lot of people will go to passages like 1 Corinthians chapter 13, 10. It says, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. And some believe that that perfect in this text, is, it's the word of God. It's the Bible, the perfect. But I struggle to believe that because it doesn't add up to the rest of what the Apostle Paul teaches. You see, sound doctrine summarizes and synthesizes the Bible's teaching as, as a coherent whole. I've often said, if you, if you want to discover God's truth, if you're looking at something and you're like, hmm, is this really what God is saying? You've got to look to other parts of the Bible because the Bible doesn't contradict itself. Right? And, and for all its diversity, Scripture fits together as this marvelous unity because it consists of God's very own words. It reveals God's own thoughts and his acts. So sound doctrine brings together all, all of Scripture's teachings on every subject the Bible addresses. So Paul, who's inspired by the Holy Spirit when he wrote his epistles, he, he's not going to contradict himself. And I have a hard time believing that he was referring to the per perfect is God's word because it doesn't really stand up in context to interpret 1 Corinthians like that. The perfect has to be heaven because Paul later goes on in verse 12 to say this, for we now see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face, now I know in part then, then I shall know fully even as I have been fully known. Who can say that? Who can say that? Who can say 
I shall know fully even as I have been fully known. Nobody, absolutely nobody. I mean, for crying out loud, who can say that? Even with the Bible. Who can say that? There are mysteries in the word that I don't fully understand and won't until I am in heaven. And I just can't find any text in the Bible that says miracles, signs, and wonders are not for today. I can't find them. And the one thing I don't fully understand is if God doesn't do miracles, then why do we teach people to pray? Why do we accept that in the Bible, but we don't believe that miracles are for today? Because if miracles aren't for today, we would have to start classifying what prayers would, consist, would make God actually do a miracle. Okay, God, I need to pray for something that isn't going to require your intervention because I can't, I can't claim it as a miracle. I can't claim it as a divine movement. So, you know, I could pray for things like, Lord, get me to work today because I know I'm going to get to work, right? But I, my cousin has cancer. I can't pray for healing because if he's healed from cancer, well, then that would be a miracle. And yet the Bible tells us that when someone's sick, to have the elders of the church lay hands on them and pray. It never clarifies what kind of sickness. So if we're to pray and the prayer of faith makes them well, that's a miracle. And we're told to do that in the book of James. So what we have without the baptism of the Holy Spirit is simply not enough. What we have without the baptism of the Holy Spirit is simply not enough. This is the conclusion of Jesus' disciples. And I, I want you to stop now before I even get into this. We're going to close here in a little bit. I want you to understand that there's a lot of people here with different views on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And that's okay. What I'm going to talk about today is just the baptism of the Holy Spirit. What happened to the disciples? That's what I want to talk about. Because I know a lot of doctrines, like a lot of, a lot of people like to say, well, you've never been baptized in the Holy Spirit if this hasn't happened or this hasn't happened. I don't want to focus on that today. I just want to focus on the baptism of the Holy Spirit according to this text. That's all I want to do. So stay with me. Hang with me. Whatever we have without the baptism of the Holy Spirit is just not enough. This had to be the conclusion that the disciples came to when they heard Jesus say, don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift. Wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about, because John baptized with water, but in a few days you're gonna be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now think about it, just a week earlier that they, they watched Jesus crucified on a cross. And even though Jesus told them that this was gonna happen, they weren't personally or emotionally prepared for it at all. They were not ready. Jesus was crucified, he died, all seemed hopeless, nothing made sense. They were hiding, they were afraid of their own lives, maybe in danger, and then, and then Sunday came. Jesus rose, the stone was rolled away, the dead body of their master came back to life and they saw him in his resurrected form. Now you talk about a game changer, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If Jesus could do that, he could do anything, right? Now the disciples really believe it. He conquered death, he overcame the grave and he proved to the disciples he was indeed who he said he was. And then in Acts chapter one, we see that he presented himself to his disciples over a period of 40 days, over and over again, proving who he was, teaching them about his kingdom. And then he started to give them the plan of what he wanted them to do next. Okay, here's, here's the plan, fellas. You've been with me from the beginning. You saw me die, you saw me be raised back to life. Now here's what I want you to do. And he tells them everyone, everywhere. 
I want you to go everywhere and present the gospel. Every person, every race, every nation was not only to hear about what had happened, but was to be invited into a personal relationship with God through the risen Jesus Christ. Think about it for a moment. Just think about this, the implications of this. I mean, it seems way more like an impossibility than it does a possibility. Most of these disciples were, weren't formally educated. Many of them were in their 20s and some even in their teens. All of them lived in a very poor region under the domination of, the Roman, of Roman rule. And for most of the three years that they had walked with Jesus, they didn't even get along. They fought and they bickered. Several of them were rivals and they were battling for top position on the discipleship group. None of them had even traveled more than a few hundred miles from home. And all of this was during a time of very limited technology. They didn't have any, any Greyhound. They didn't have Delta Airlines. They didn't have any of that. Travel was by a horse or by foot. There were no phones, there were no computers, and yet Jesus expected that group of people to take the gospel to the world. And he wanted them to do it without him. That's why he promised his Holy Spirit. What we have in our lives without the Holy Spirit is simply not enough. Can any of you relate to this? Can you relate? Like what I have is simply not enough. Addictions that you've tried to overcome, but you can't. Habits that you have tried everything to break, but you can't. Needs that you can't meet. Complications with relationships. You just can't fix it. Discouraging situations are always getting you down. Dreams that you want to pursue, but can't see how they're ever going to become a reality. Maybe some of you feel even your attempts to follow Jesus, you just feel empty. You feel lacking. Maybe some of you just, you can't even pursue a relationship with Jesus because you feel like you don't measure up. The spiritual life we want feels more like this major impossibility. Confessions of a pastor, guess what? I've been there. Sometimes I look at the job that God has asked me to do and I want to just run. (laughs) Come back next week still though. Come on, I mean, it's, it's the truth. I felt this. I have felt those things before, but here's the thing, there's good news. Because God knows you and I are inadequate for the task in our own strength. Guess what? Our inability doesn't take him by surprise. Our inability doesn't, does not limit what God can do and through us. Did you hear that? Our inability does not limit what God can do in and through us. In fact, today, if you feel this, if you feel inadequate, if you feel like it's an impossibility, I want you to know it's a good place to be because you need to be aware of your inability to do anything on your own because that's when you realize your desperate need for the Holy Spirit. You need to recognize your needs for something before God can ever release something amazing in and through you. Self-dependency, listen to me, self-dependency is the enemy of a supernatural life. Self-dependency is the enemy of a supernatural life. The power of the Holy Spirit changed Peter's life, changed his life. The moment, you remember that moment he promised Jesus, they're, they're at having dinner and Jesus says, uh, one of you is gonna betray me, you're gonna all, and Peter, you remember Peter? You gotta love Peter. I feel like Peter so many times in my life. Oh, if everybody in this room abandons you, I won't. 
I won't abandon you. Everyone else will. I won't do it. And you know what? Peter, when he made that promise, he absolutely 100% meant it. I believe it. He loved Jesus. He was dead serious. He meant it. He wanted it so bad, but he had no idea how weak and pathetic he really was. Because when the moment of truth came, Peter denied Jesus not once, but three times. Peter was inconsistent all throughout his life, inconsistent in his spiritual life. He would walk on water with Jesus in one moment and then sink in the waves because he was overwhelmed with fear. He would make the most incredible confession that Jesus is the son of God. And then the very next moment, he'd be getting rebuked by Jesus. In fact, Jesus told Peter, get behind me, Satan. Been called a lot of things. I'm glad I have not been called Satan yet. Get behind me, Satan. Why? Because Peter's telling you, you can't go to the cross. You can't die, Jesus. He would stand boldly in the garden of Gethsemane and be willing to fight with his sword. Be willing to take out some of these, these guards, Jewish guards, and then only later to deny knowing Jesus because he was so afraid. He would do okay from time to time. He would do okay. But then his own sinful, selfish nature would take over and he couldn't figure out how to move forward. He was miserable, miserable after Jesus died. Even after the resurrection, he was still miserable. He needed Jesus to come and restore him personally. He'd return to his, own way of, his old way of life He didn't feel worthy. He realized he didn't have what it takes to do what God was asking him to do. He allowed his fear of continued failure to take his confidence to do what God had asked him to do. But coming face to face with his selfish and sinful nature was life altering for him. And thank God, because can you imagine if Peter would have quit? But on the day of Pentecost, Peter stepped into his new day. His life was radically changed. God poured out his spirit upon him and the rest of them. He was restored from his past and he was filled with God's overcoming power. You see, what should have been the end for Peter wasn't. He didn't stay overwhelmed with his past. He didn't allow his failure to become final. Jesus forgave Peter. Jesus restored Peter. Jesus freed Peter from living in shame. He had a future. He had a hope. I need you to see this. This is where Peter was before Pentecost. But it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. God couldn't have used Peter like he wanted to. Peter needed to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Forgiveness, it was critical for Peter, but it wasn't enough. He needed Jesus to restore him, but it wasn't enough. He needed more in order to do what God was asking him to do. He needed to be infused with and empowered by the Holy Spirit. That's what he needed. Now, here's what I want to do. I went a little long. I'm sorry. We're going to close our service right now. And I'm, I'm, anybody who has to go, you're officially dismissed. You're officially dismissed. Don't feel pressure to stay. But what we're going to do is we're going to open up our altars. Worship team's going to lead us in a time of prayer. I want any pastoral staff that's here, if you would come up to the front. And we're just going to pray. But we're up here to pray with you as well. I want to give an invitation. But I want my staff up here and I want to pray. I think everybody, the the amazing thing about Pentecost, even though that never happened again, we never read about the rushing wind or the fire, we do see the infilling of the Holy Spirit over and over and over again. It's this continued event. It's supposed to be, I don't care if you were baptized in the Holy Spirit when you were 12 at summer camp, you need to be filled again. We constantly need to keep getting filled with the Holy Spirit in order to do what he's asking us to do. Man, I need to be filled with the Holy Spirit every morning I wake up to go face what I've got to face, and so do you. 
We need a continued, fi- continuous filling of the Holy Spirit. So, man, my staff, we're all going to be up here, and that's what we're praying for. <laughs> we're going to be praying that we're filled with the Holy Spirit. But I want to open up this altar. And there's nothing, it's not like when you step across this threshold and you step into the altar that all of a sudden you step into God's presence. His presence is right here, but you in your seat, nope, you don't have it. No, it's not like that. God can move where you're at right now. But there is something that happens when we, when we extend this invitation and we give you a chance to practice your, your faith. It's an act of faith by stepping out. Jesus does it all throughout the Gospels. He gives these invitations. Do this, do this, and then he moves. So I, want, I, I really want to pray. We enter into this year, 2023. Every mom and dad needs to be filled with the Holy Spirit, raising up kids in this day, day and age. We need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Teachers need to be filled with the Holy Spirit as you enter into the classroom. Man, the schools are a war zone nowadays. You need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Businessmen, you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. As you walk into the boardroom and you lead your meetings, you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Coaches, you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit as you walk into that locker room and you've got a chance to make a difference in all of those lives. You need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I don't care what you do, you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so I wanna give an opportunity. And that's all I want you to do is seek the Holy Spirit. I'm not going to tell you A plus B equals this and you, you're going to get it. We're just going to pray and we're going to seek for the Holy Spirit. Can, I, can we do that? Father God, we love you so much. We worship you and praise you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your son who came to this earth, died on a cross for our sins and built a bridge to heaven so that we could have relationship with God the Father once again. And I thank you that this mission that you have given us, all that be. Jesus began to do and to teach still to this day through us, through the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm thankful for the Holy Spirit today. And so now I pray that the Holy Spirit would move. God, that there would not be one person who is feeling inadequate, who is battling something in their life. I pray against pride. If pride is keeping them from praying, I pray against it in the name of Jesus that today they would just surrender their life to the power of the Holy Spirit so that they can begin to experience the freedom and the power that comes from it. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.